Ever since the Wright brothers first took flight in their powered aircraft in 1903, development and improvements in safety and performance have been continuous in the aviation industry. The Wright Flyer was built from spruce and ash, and it was damaged beyond repair after only its fourth flight. By the start of World War I, planes had started to be made fully out of metal, but metal also brought along issues, the potential for rust and damage, particularly when facing the very high temperatures from combustion engines. The first multi-engine airliner, capable of flying at night and equipped with a two-way radio, was the Boeing 247 in 1933. The first pressurised cabin came with the Boeing 307 and allowed a cruise altitude of 25,000 feet. By ascending above the weather, it could fly faster and more efficiently to provide its 33 passengers a smoother and quieter ride. The introduction in 1948 of the Rolls-Royce Dart turboprop combined the power of jet propulsion with the efficiency of propellers and marked the transition to jet engines. The age of the jet engine really began in the United States in the late 1950s, with the introduction of the Boeing 707 and Douglas DC-8 airliners, and their Pratt & Whitney JT-3 engines. Jet engines have far fewer moving parts than piston engines, so they're more reliable, safer and less costly to operate. They burn kerosene, which is less expensive than gasoline, and produce tremendous thrust for their weight. As a result, jet aircraft can be made larger and can fly faster than piston engine aircraft. The coming decades are marked by a succession of tweaks, improvements, subtle refinements in design, materials and understanding, with the occasional bold leap forward. Planes are bigger, fly further, carry more passengers, and most crucially, are safer. As aviation knowledge advances, the work required to make the next incremental step is greater, takes longer and costs more. The next stage in aviation is coming. And this is the story of how one major innovator is trying to deliver it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Johnny Dowling. In this episode, we're looking at how the aviation industry continues to push the limits of design, and especially material knowledge, and ask if the UK's jet engine manufacturer Rolls-Royce has found a more effective way of making the next incremental steps through its long-running partnership with universities. To understand the challenges modern aeronautical engineers are trying to overcome, Let's remind ourselves of the basics. The key forces acting on an aircraft are thrust. The force exerted by the engine and its propellers, which pushes the air backwards, causing a reaction or thrust in the forward direction. Drag. The resistance to forward motion, directly opposed to thrust. Lift. The force upward, which sustains the airplane in flight. Weight the downward force due to gravity, directly opposed to lift. If thrust is greater than drag, the plane will accelerate. If lift is greater than weight, then the plane will climb. Lift is created by the airfoils as they move through the air. Increasing thrust and increasing lift 
is one way of improving performance, but it can come at an efficiency cost. Reducing drag and reducing weight will have the same performance improvement, but could be coupled with efficiency gains. But making planes lighter comes with major challenges, and the safety demands of the aviation industry means there is no room for error. The drive for materials within Rolls-Royce is always really about sustainability, which comes through different aspects. Neil Glover is the head of materials research at Rolls-Royce. So you've got to balance different aspects of mechanical strength, toughness, fatigue performance, creep performance with environmental behaviour, with manufacturability and cost, suitability for coating, a whole range of different constraints, if you like. So to deliver a system which actually works and then to assure its integrity that it will work for the very high levels of assurance that are needed in aerospace throughout a long um, service lifetime. You know, it's, it's a difficult and complicated process of lots and lots of careful work. So it doesn't necessarily take time, a lot of effort and a lot of deep specialist knowledge. The demand for deep specialist knowledge and lots of repetitive efforts has driven Rolls-Royce to develop a new relationship with universities, with the establishment of technology centres, with the first aim to deliver new materials research. We do materials research across a, a range of different centres. It's all directed by our internal specialists who understand the applications of the materials and their performance in, in the uh, gas turbine system very deeply and who understand the requirements of what we need. And then we work with academic centres around the country and around the world to deliver pieces of that uh, technology puzzle that we can then put together to make the whole system work. So in the UK in particular, we work with Birmingham, Cambridge and Swansea universities who are our materials uh, UTCs, University Technology Centres. But we, we also work with a range of other universities, um, Manchester, Sheffield, Oxford, Imperial and so on for, for particular technical disciplines. Rolls-Royce are one of the few companies in the UK that have always encouraged massive interaction with universities. And I was lucky enough to join just at the start of that process. So Rolls-Royce deliberately went to universities for their primary and some of their primary and their most important research through establishing many, many university technology centers. The earliest center was uh, around about 1989, 1990. Ours was soon after in 1992. So that gives you a background with which framework agreement with which to work with them. And then we were fortunate enough to win a, a massive uh, research centre in, in 1989, mainly through the government with, with Rolls-Royce support. And it, it took off from there, really, and it's been growing ever since. Paul Bowen is the research director at the University of Birmingham University Technology Research Centre. The centre was the first created between the company and a university. Built in 1992, they have subsequently built a high-temperature research centre at the University of Birmingham in 2015. The HDRC was uh, arose by a government initiative where the government would put in one-third of the cost as long as it was something big and the company was expected to put two-thirds of the cost in. And HDRC then became a truly joint 
governed jointly centre for Rolls-Royce prosecuting research. So it's its most attractive feature is it's at industrial scale properly. So it can make blades at the size scale that goes straight into an engine, yet we're allowed to heavily instrument the process. And so the amount of data we get as we investigate how you make these blades and then how you make them better uh, is, is unrivaled. Rolls-Royce has worked with many more universities over the years, and areas of research at each university is able to get very precise. They were strategic in the sense that they went for particular areas of expertise. So there was not too much overlap. Uh, In the science of materials or materials science, we were very early on fortunate enough to have a, a very strong tripartite agreement with the universities of Cambridge and the University of Swansea and that helped us to focus in particularly on nickel and titanium alloys. So nickel and titanium alloys are are really, they're used widely but at the quality and the performance requirements that Rolls-Royce need Uh, They're in a league of their own in terms of the quality of alloy that they need and the stresses and strains that you put these alloys under. And my particular expertise uh, is sometimes it's as exciting as watching paint dry to other people, but it's how cracks grow in, in aero engines. So you work out how cracks grow and then you make sure they don't grow in the engines in service. Most of Paul's work at the Birmingham Technology Centre is focused on airplane engine blades and discs. So the the metallurgy story in Birmingham to date has been very much centred on these two critical components of an engine. It's often said that blades make you money or lose you money, but if you ever fail a disc in service, you can lose the company. So my particular work is on uh, making sure that the discs Uh, these safety critical components never ever fail and especially as you increase the operating conditions on new alloys. The blades are more about proper economics. But one very simple concept is that they are in the jargon they are single crystals and single crystals again in using jargon but are anisotropic so simply all that means is you have to make the blade in a particular orientation or direction and to line it up with the axis of stress in the engine the requirements on on that are really quite critical in terms of angular matching of the direction of the crystal and the direction of the stress in in the blade One area where they have made a huge contribution is understanding the long-term integrity and crack growth uh, mechanisms at very high temperature in some of our high-strength, high-integrity components. So detailed fracture mechanics, understanding of crack growth at very high temperatures and how to build representative lifing models. That's that's an area where they've really made an enormous contribution over, over recent years. The easiest way to describe it is that most alloys that we use, including the discs, are in the jargon polycrystals. So essentially you are worried about size, shape, 
but they all interact together to give you essentially homogeneous and continuous properties across the component not quite right but it will do when you come to the single crystals you have to grow them in very controlled conditions because the natural tendency for materials is to wish to form more than one grain orientation as you process them so when we come to actually processing a blade and producing a blade so blade is casting is a century century centuries old process and if you're not careful you can get competing grains coming into what's called the primary grain and that will produce a a, a very particular type of defect Modern technology available at the University of Birmingham has allowed researchers to speed up the process of getting new components into aircraft. Rolls-Royce have got some of the best disc alloys in the world. The first disc alloy took over 20 years to develop and put in. The one that we're currently working on, uh, if as expected it gets into an engine by 2025, uh, will have achieved that in, in under 10 years. So if you then come directly to HTRC, by integrating the design, simulation and having capabilities in-house, the plan there is to go through some cycles which would previously have taken 24 months to come down to six months. And more recently, Rolls-Royce is trying to use data to track and monitor the condition of components. Rolls-Royce have a check on where every blade ends up in each engine and is monitored through service so it's not it's not just we know we put a blade in we know the manufacturing route the processing conditions that that was produced under when you've got that sort of one-to-one capability through life as long as you can get the data back as to how that component behaves it opens up such new possibilities we have the ability to understand the, the, the traceability of the manufacturing of our of many of our parts to ensure that they have consistent manufacturing and we understand all of that manufacturing pedigree to guarantee service integrity. But the sustainability aspect brings about, I think, a new requirement there that you, if, you, if you're going to try and track back and understand the embedded energy at every stage of that manufacturing process. And I think that's an area that lots of companies, not just in aerospace, are working on now. How do you get accurate data and how do you get accurate information about the, the source of all the materials right back to ground, right back to mine? And how do you account for all of those sustainability impacts all the way through? It's kind of a different aspect of looking at, at traceability and one that's, that's really developing. So tools and methods to do that are a kind of area of, of, of active development right now. But now, the company is looking to a greener aviation future and researching ways to move away from combustion engine planes. The um, electrification of flight can be realised in a, in a number of different ways. So at the smaller end of the, the market, smaller aircraft uh, for shorter range, lighter payloads, they might be wholly electric. So an energy storage system, uh, lithium-ion batteries, power electronics and electrical motors providing thrust through, through propulsors. As you go up in size, then the systems will probably become hybrid. So there'll be some kind of prime mover burning a fuel, and that fuel might be a conventional fuel, a kerosene, or it might be a sustainable kerosene type fuel, or it might be a hydrogen fuel. And in particular, the challenge for that electrical system is very much about power density. So the, the power which is stored or which can be delivered per unit weight. 
So we're interested in high power density motors, high power density energy storage, high power density power electronics. All of that is, is to some degree limited by the materials and the performance of the materials that are used in the system. There are always promises of radically different materials and the potential for one another big area for us in, in Birmingham currently is, is um, replacing metals with ceramic matrix composites. So you can't really replace the metals with a monolithic ceramic, uh, an oxide if you, if you like, without giving the ceramic a bit more help and a bit more resistance to resisting stresses and temperatures in service. So those sorts of materials do promise uh, huge gains in, in, in the future. We have to look at those. They aren't necessarily that easy to produce. And with big changes ahead, research at technology centres like the one in Birmingham can look at more radical changes to plain components. So we're now at the position with roles where, where they want to try radically new things, they will come to us, not necessarily to our metallurgy department, although we, 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 we expect that to be ongoing, but also to other parts of, of, of the university where radically different technologies might be available. The relationship between Rolls-Royce and the University of Birmingham has provided a huge benefit to both sides over the years. A state-of-the-art research centre that's provided many materials, research breakthroughs, and a pipeline of well-trained students ready to move on to a career at Rolls-Royce. It takes a level of time and experience, and that's where the long-term relationships like the ones we have with Birmingham really kind of come to the fore, because you've, you've got time to learn how to work together and to understand each other. And we, we need to do materials research, which gives a benefit to our system. So there has to be a purpose to the research for us. It has to deliver to one of our end goals. And we can understand and articulate those end goals, so what we're trying to achieve from a, from a given piece of research. But equally, we recognise that it has to have academic content for the university. There's a very strong movement between the two, and it is mutually beneficial. It, it's more like, it genuinely is, it, people would say this, but it's, it's genuinely more like a family. It, it's, a, it's quite, and, and perhaps we are, perhaps we are one of the best examples of that, where you, you do have a family relationship, which does mean that it's not always, always plain sailing. I mean, there are, there are things that we've developed, particularly in my lifetime, We've developed some, what we think are very special alloys, but they haven't made it onto an aero engine. And so suddenly, you know, you have to say, well, that area of research is, is, is stopping. And do we worry? Yes, of course we worry, but we always think there's things to come on. So it's, it's establishing that layer of underpinning science behind the engineering that we do so we understand things very deeply and we can de-risk things before before they go into service or we can address service issues but the the skills and training side is is also really critical and the recruitment side having a skills pipeline if you want to recruit a materials engineer with experience in gas turbine technology or high performance magnets or, or whatever it might be you know that that is relatively difficult and you could be um 
you could be involved in that, in that recruitment process if you go to the open market for a long time. And what we found over the years that, that works much better is to grow those skills through your own pipeline at the universities, through undergraduate placements and um, internships and through PhD studentships and um, um, postdoctoral research positions. And then at the point that people are ready or, or wish to move into industry, then they know what industry is about. And this year, the relationship between Rolls-Royce and the University of Birmingham was honoured with the Bhattacharya Award, named after Lord Bhattacharya and given for outstanding collaboration between industry and academia. I've been involved for... Uh, I've interacted with two generations of, of Rolls-Royce researchers and university researchers uh, in the, the focused area of making safe, efficient engines. And the Birmingham story still remains primarily that of, of blades and, and discs, the, the metallurgy at the heart of the at the engine. And uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, it's, it's been fun. And it's it's also f if you get it right, it gives you a very stable funding basis to go forward. So I think Rolls-Royce has over many years like decades, um, supported research in the university base and the academic base and has invested the time and the, the energy and the, the sort of staff time in understanding how to, how to make that work um, and finding all these balance and compromises. And I think that's then enabled us to build quite a mature system and to network different partners together as well from different universities to get the best out of all of the different universities rather than having them compete to try and deliver in the same areas of research. I think there are other companies who, who work very successfully and extensively in the, in the university base, but I think sometimes people think that it is sort of something they can set up very quickly, set up a university research centre and, and get it working in, in a sort of mature way very quickly. And I think you just have to be prepared to, to invest the time and effort to grow it. And you have to maintain that support over many years as well to, to keep that skill and to keep that collaboration live. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling. My co-host was Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own aerodynamic masterpiece is Rory Harris. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>